Hi, this is Jerry DiPiano, and you are listening to, or possibly watching, the Love Mia Vita podcast. Today's conversation is with Dr. Mark Ratner, and we're going to be sharing some information on something called the Honest Conversation, THC, but we're really describing what has happened with respect to the fervor, the enthusiasm, and all the hype over using products like CBD and THC in their ability or lack thereof to ameliorate certain symptoms that we may be experiencing. Now, Dr. Ratner is an expert in a number of different areas, among them nutrition, but he is also a board certified urologist and co-founder of Therologics, which is a company based in the United States in Rockville, Maryland. Dr. Ratner, welcome to the Love Me Avita podcast. And perhaps you can share with our audience more about your background, which is quite distinguished. Well, thanks for having me, Jerry. Um, yeah, I, um, I went to medical school a few years ago. Um, <laughs> uh, but before I went to medical school, um, after I finished my undergraduate studies at Cornell, um, I decided to stick around at Cornell and went into a master's program in nutrition. Um, and uh, Cornell back then was, was already kind of known as a, uh, a center for nutrition education. And I think that's only expanded these days with the T. Colin Campbell uh, Center. Um, uh, he is sort of an emeritus professor now at the Cornell Department of Nutrition back when I was uh, taking his course, he was an assistant professor. So that tells you <laughs> how many years ago it was. A couple was. of years ago. A couple of years ago. Um, yeah, and then I, uh, I went off to medical school. And um, after medical school, I trained uh, in, in, I did my residency in uh, urology and then ended up in practice subspecializing in um, male fertility. I, I spent uh, most of my time uh, working with um, a very large uh, IVF practice and doing uh, male factor fertility work. Um, about 20 years ago, um, my old training in nutrition um, piqued my interest in work that was being published looking at the impact of certain micronutrients on prostate cancer risk. Um, there was a lot of very exciting stuff getting published. Uh, which seemed to indicate that diet and lifestyle um, could really impact a man's risk uh, of, of prostate cancer. Um, and when we say diet, we're also talking about specific nutrients, things like soy and green tea um, and uh, nutrients like lycopene, vitamin D. Um, and so with my background in nutrition, I got together with some of the full-time faculty people I knew here uh, in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, and uh, we started a company called Therologics. Uh, and the purpose at first was to really just try to commercialize the, the research that was being published about uh, nutrition and prostate cancer risk. Um, and that's where we started uh, almost 20 years ago. Uh, and the company has grown and evolved. Um, and so we now have uh, a presence in many different sort of specialty areas, started out in urology and male fertility, 
and then we also worked into uh, OBGYN and reproductive endocrinology, which basically means uh, the IVF world. And then about five, maybe about four years ago, four or five years ago, I was at a medical conference and a reproductive endocrinologist that I knew, um, this, these are the doctors that do IVF, um, he came up to me and he said, do you know of any approaches, nutritional approaches for women who have endometriosis? Um, and I said, you know, I, I, I have not really read of anything. Let me look into it. Um, and so I started doing some checking in the literature to see what kind of what kind of nutritional approaches or nutrient approaches had ever been tried in in, in endometriosis, and I crossed paths with a compound called PEA, um, which is short for pomatoyl ethanolamide, which is why we simply call it PEA. It's sort of a mouthful, um, and it turned out that this compound was a cannabinoid. Um, and I was sort of familiar with the term cannabinoid, but my association with the term cannabinoid was with cannabis. Um, and, you know, my familiarity with cannabis dates back 40 years, but at the same time, um, what I was quickly able to understand was that the science behind cannabinoid, uh, cannabinoid physiology had really exploded in the past 20 years. And shockingly, uh, it's something that is incredibly important. Um, it involves natural substances that our body produces. Um, and yet a survey that was done, I think about three years ago showed that less than 20% of medical schools in the United States are actually teaching um, cannabinoid science in their curriculum. So it's still, I think, a prisoner of the old, you know, reefer madness. <laughs> you know, there are people who are still- in I saw that too. I saw the movie at Johns Hopkins yeah. University. <laughs> you know, I mean, the problem is that there's really, really exciting science that is just now being explored uh, because for many, many years, uh, the government had cannabis scheduled as a, what's called a schedule one uh, substance on the, on the drug enforcement agency's list of uh, controlled substances. So it was considered no different than heroin or LSD. Um, yes. And obviously that's now changed in many states. I don't know what the numbers, it's probably up to about 20 states by now um, where it's uh, actually legal for recreational use cannabis um, and even more states where there's uh, the possibility of using it with a, a doctor's oversight, you know, for medical use. Um, but nevertheless, the, the question that was posed to me about endometriosis um, led me to this compound, as I said, PEA, uh, and it led me to really begin to understand what we call the endocannabinoid system, the human endocannabinoid system. So if we could go back and look at endo, the endocannabinoid system and what, you know, what does that entail? 
Now we have, there are receptors in our body right. uh, that are part of this system, but they're the, the contribution to overall wellness is really important. So perhaps you could share with sure. those listening and watching. So, so the history of how this was discovered is really fascinating. Um, cannabis, marijuana, has been known for thousands of years um, to have certain medicinal qualities. I mean, there are Chinese, ancient Chinese medicine texts from 2000 years ago that call for the use of cannabis for certain types of problems. Um, but nobody really understood what it was in cannabis that was affecting the body um, up until about the early 1960s. And what happened in the early 1960s was a scientist, it was actually a number of scientists around the world, but the, the guy who really led the research uh, was an Israeli organic chemist. Uh, his name is Raphael Meshulam. He's still alive. Uh, he's like 94 years old at this point. He's considered the father of cannabis science. And he was the guy who first isolated and characterized both THC and CBD. Those are the two primary bioactive compounds that are found in cannabis. Um, and so he proved that those were the compounds that were affecting the human body. But the question then was, why should we, how is it that we as, as humans have this effect from, a, from compounds that are only found in this one plant? Well, it turns out we have receptors throughout our body. And those receptors are what THC and CBD bind to. And we call those receptors cannabinoid receptors. There are two primary cannabinoid receptors we call CB1 or cannabinoid one and CB2. So CB1 receptors are primarily in the brain and central nervous system, spinal cord. And CB2 receptors are primarily in the immune system. So the CB2 receptors are found in the spleen, they're found uh, in the bone marrow, they're found on white blood cells, okay? So then the question became, why should we have receptors for these compounds, these two plant compounds, only found in one plant? Why should our bodies have evolved these receptors? And it turns out, logically, that in our bodies, we make signaling molecules that are designed to bind to those receptors. So the body basically makes its own versions of THC and CBD. And we call those endocannabinoids. Endo meaning within. So when we say the endocannabinoid system or the human endocannabinoid system, what we're talking about is a, is a, a system of signaling molecules, signaling compounds, and receptors that are found naturally in our tissues. And this is analogous to the opioids. You know, 200 years ago, they discovered morphine. They extracted morphine from the opium poppy. Um, and it's the same question. Why should, uh, you know, how is it that this compound, morphine, affects our brains? And it took 175 years, okay? It wasn't until like 
40 years ago, they discovered that we've got these receptors in our brain, which are opiate receptors. And the same exact thing, why do we have opiate receptors? Because we make our own version of morphine. It's called endorphin. And so the body's system is essentially, um, you know, it's very similar in terms of the cannabinoids. The human endocannabinoid system is these two receptors, CB1, CB2, and then several different signaling compounds or molecules. The one that was first discovered was called AEA, which is short for a very long chemical name, arachidonyl ethanolamide. But Meshulam, the Israeli scientist, he nicknamed it anandamide. And the reason he called it anandamide is because ananda is the Sanskrit word for bliss. And it's an amide. And we produce this chemical naturally in our brains and it can create a bliss-like state. And so that's why he named it, he nicknamed it anandamide. So anandamide or AEA was the first compound, signaling compound discovered. And then the second one was called 2AG. And now other ones have been discovered as well. And one of those is called PEA, palmitoyl ethanolamide. It's a signaling molecule that is made in human tissue. And its purpose, and actually let me back up a little bit, What's the purpose of the whole endocannabinoid system? Why do we have it? What does it, how does it help us? What's the function that it serves? The answer is, and probably the simplest way to put this, is that the purpose of the endocannabinoid system is to return us to baseline after something in the environment creates a response in our body. Now, what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is, when we, when something triggers neurotransmitter release in our brain, we don't want the neurotransmitters to just keep releasing and releasing and releasing and releasing. And so what happens is when neurotransmitters are released in the brain, it triggers the release of anandamide, which then goes back, binds to the CB1 receptors in the brain and slows down neurotransmitter release. So Basically, it's a negative feedback loop. And that's what's happening both with CB1 in the, neuro, in the neural system, you know, the, the brain and spinal cord, and in CB2. So if you stimulate the CB2 receptor, what you're basically doing is you're downregulating inflammatory response. You're downregulating immune response, calming down the immune system. It's a return to baseline. And that's really, the, the endocannabinoid system is ancient. It, it's, it was, it's been estimated that it evolved 500 million years ago. Every single vertebrate has these same molecules and receptors, the signaling molecules and receptors. So it's, it's ubiquitous throughout uh, all vertebrate species. Um, and it's really fascinating because until this research, and you know, AEA, 2AG, CB1, CB2 receptors, those were first discovered in 1993, okay? I mean, this is like very recently discovered stuff. Um, and so, for, you know, the big pharma, they're hard at work, okay? Um, they're trying to figure out how do you build 
compounds, you know, scientifically, how do you bind, build compounds that will bind to these receptors, basically synthetic cannabinoid signaling molecules? Um, so, you know, then the question is, where do we, where does medical cannabis fit in? Okay, uh, medical cannabis, which is THC, CBD, and then dozens of other compounds in the cannabis plant. You not only have THC and CBD, but you have CBG and CBN and CBZ. And then you've got a whole nother class of compounds in cannabis, which are called terpenes. Terpenes are the essential oils, which give cannabis its very unique smell. And there's over a hundred different terpenes that are found in cannabis. Some of those have bioactivity. And so when you use cannabis medically, you're getting what people in the medical cannabis world call the entourage effect. You're basically getting all of these compounds working together. But that's pretty unpredictable. And if you, ever go, if you, go, ever, if you ever go into a cannabis dispensary, like a medical cannabis dispensary, and you look at the dozens of different strains of cannabis, and you, you walk in there and you talk to the, the person behind the desk. The bud master. Um, the blend, or they also call them, uh, what do they call them? Uh, bud tenders. Yes, That's, bud tender, bud master, yes. They call them bud tenders. And, and, and you know, unfortunately the bud tenders, they're not trained medically, okay? And so if you go in there and you say, you know, I've been having problems with uh, my lower back or I, you know, I, you know, chronic issues with, with anxiety or with whatever your complaint is that you want to use medical cannabis for, the bud tender is going to help you pick a strain. You know, there is less than zero science going on there. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, I think the, the initial excitement and the initial hype that um, that accompanied medical cannabis legalization in many states and then recreational and then CBD. I mean, you know, there, there are some very, very, very big bets placed um, in, in the CBD world. I think it was CBD was basically legalized in the United States in the 2018 Farm Bill. So at the end of 2018, uh, the Farm Bill that was passed legalized hemp. Now, what is hemp? Hemp is cannabis that has less than 0.3% THC by dry weight. Okay. Um, and so therefore, any ingredients, any, any compounds that are in a hemp plant can be sold legally according to the DEA. Okay. Um, and so that, that meant CBD could be sold according to the DEA. Now, the other agency though, in the government that supervises these things is the FDA. So while something became legal according to the DEA, the FDA has still not figured out how it wants to handle CBD. But that didn't stop there from being a huge gold rush of companies that were rushing to market with tons and tons of CBD products. Everything from soft gels, to tinctures, to uh, balms that you would rub on your skin, um, all different types of, of applications for CBD. 
And it, it turned out that the, the hemp crop that was planted in 2019, something like 80% of it went unharvested because they so overestimated the demand. Um, and, you know, it may be that the pendulum is swinging both ways, but, um, you know, the, the, the two biggest companies in the CBD world, uh, Charlotte's Web and CBDMD, they're, they are really been knocked back on their heels. I mean, it, it's, uh, they're suffering. Their stock prices are down about 95% from their high. Um, so the, the CBD hype has sort of died down quite a bit. Yes, it, it really, it really has. And it, there, you know, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of science, even in the space of pain, um, alleviation of pain, particularly um, when the no drug studies have actually, or no clinical studies have been performed doing dose ranging. And when we say dose ranging, so what's the lowest dose, which is the intermediate dose, which is the highest effect, which is the highest dose that can be administered safely to an individual. So if there's no data, what you're relying on is mostly anecdotal information. And as a drug developer and as a consumer now health company, we also understand that when you're looking at pain in particular, amelioration of pain, it's very subjective. So when you do prescription drugs, you tend to have studies that are quite heavily populated in order to show statistical significance. Pain studies are very difficult because there's a high placebo effect. So if you think you're feeling better in layperson language, if you think you're feeling better, you may actually move from zero pain to moderate relief to even more significant relief of pain. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty good because that's part of the placebo effect. And it, it really depends on the dose. We've looked at CBD products as an example with 100, 300, 500 milligrams of CBD. And they really aren't gonna do anything. 1000 milligrams of CBD, we still don't know. Is that more significant in terms of dose or is that just cutting the surface? There's no science to prove that. So there is no good science. And that's part of the problem. So when we think about this, we think that from a regulatory point of view, we really need to be doing more investigation. And that investigation probably requires full clinical trials on these types of products, both from the safety perspective and also to show that they are efficacious at a particular dosage level and in a specific population. I mean, as women's health experts at Fem Pharma, which uh, the Love Me Evita podcast is sponsored by my company, Fem Pharma, we want to do what is right for humans, especially for women at all ages. So we don't know it, what the safety is in a population of women in the, the reproductive age group cohort. And as they transition into perimenopause and postmenopause, th these are all considerations that one must undertake in order to demonstrate the safety. And that's the first thing. Safety is, is paramount. And then looking at, does it work? Is it efficacious? That's the other important criteria. If it doesn't work, why bother to develop it? But there are some natural products I think you described that can kind of reset our bodies and can help us if we have this endocannabinoid deficiency 
and those are those supplements because they're naturally occurring in the body can be safely relatively safely used without huge concern we talk about what can set off or what can throw off the endocannabinoid system and i was surprised to learn that pretty much anything I mean, stress can set it off, trauma can set it off, certain diseases, you mentioned endometriosis, irritable bowel syndrome. So all of those diseases and disorders can throw, can throw off the ECS. We're not gonna race to you know, our dispensary. I mean, for those of you that, that believe in you know, medical marijuana, this is not to be disrespectful to anybody that uses that in, in a responsible way, but, there are some other things that are available to us, and those are the the, um, the natural products that nat that occur in the body that can be harnessed. And I think one of the ones that you mentioned was PEA. Yeah, PEA is a um, it's an incredibly interesting story how that was discovered. Um, PEA was actually discovered back in the 1940s um, in New York where there were many different um, orphanages in New York City in the early 1940s. Um, some of them were um, better funded than others. Um, and back in the early 1940s, antibiotics were not widely available. And so if a kid got strep throat, got a strep infection, um, there was no penicillin to treat it. And so typically what would happen was eventually the body would, would get rid of the infection, but there was a very high risk after a strep infection that was untreated that the child could develop what's called rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever is the result of an untreated strep infection. And when they looked at these orphanages, a scientist from Columbia University realized that the kids in the orphanages that had the best funding had extremely low rates of rheumatic fever compared to the orphanages that were sort of funded through the city and they were scrambling and had low budgets. And so they started looking at how are these kids being treated differently? Because they were all getting the same risk of strep infection, but the group that said the better orphanages didn't get rheumatic fever. And what they settled on, what they found out was that the groups in the better orphanages were being fed eggs. On, an, on a daily basis. And they actually isolated a compound from egg yolks, which they identified as palmitoyl ethanolamide. It's basically an amide of palmitic acid. It's a fairly simple compound. But they realized that that was protective. Somehow that was preventing the immune system from overreacting to the strep infection and creating rheumatic fever afterwards. And so this was actually when PEA was first discovered. It was discovered as a component in egg yolks. They had no idea that it was actually something that was also made in human tissue. And nobody understood the science. Nobody really understood why it worked, how it worked. Um, and interest in the United States sort of fell away, uh, despite the fact that Merck had, I think they filed patents on it. Uh, back in the 1940s. But in Europe, they got a tremendous amount of interest still. They had a lot of interest still. And so they started doing clinical trials. And 
PEA has been studied in Europe since really the 1960s. Um, and it was a prescription medication available in Europe uh, during the 1960s and early 70s. Um, and then uh, after the Iron Curtain fell in the 1980s, um, PEA sort of disappeared in Europe uh, as, a, as a prescription medication. And finally, a bunch of researchers about 20 years ago uh, in the early 2000s started looking at clinical, started doing really good clinical trials using PEA. And what they figured out was, and, and this coincided with the point at which they realized that it was probably an analog chemically similar to AEA, anandamide. Interesting. Right? Um, it was also a fatty acid amide, just like the other cannabinoid signaling molecules. And so in about 2008, scientists in Italy figured out what was PEA binding to? Which receptors was it binding to? Um, how did it work? And we know now how it works. PEA is endogenously produced in our tissues. The reason we can create it as a supplement though is because it's also found in certain foods. It's found in egg yolks, which we mentioned, but it's also found in peanuts and soy. Now, the amount that's found in those foods is small. Um, and in order to create it as a supplement, you couldn't just extract it. It would be cost prohibitive to do it as an extract. And so it's a very simple molecule. It's just palmitic acid with an ethanolamide molecule. And so it gets synthesized in, in basically a manufacturing facility. Um, but it's chemically identical to the signaling molecule that we make in our tissues. There have now been placebo-controlled clinical trials looking at the ability of PEA to improve patients with carpal tunnel syndrome, osteoarthritis of the knee, sciatic back pain, sciatica and back pain, um, endometriosis, um, even depression. There's a clinical trial that was published about 10 years ago Newly patients that were newly diagnosed with depression were randomized into two groups, either Selexa plus placebo or Selexa plus PEA. And then over the course of eight weeks, every couple of weeks, these patients, these subjects in this clinical trial, they, they took a depression index test as a way to score the, the, the severity of their depression. And if you compare the two groups, there were statistically significant differences. The people who took Selexa plus PEA, they got, that, they, they got better faster and more completely. The level of depression dropped more thoroughly than Selexa alone. Now, well, you might say, well, why is that? The reason is because people who are moderately to severely depressed have inflammatory changes in their brain as a result of that depression. And the PEA, has been shown to decrease neuroinflammation. So carpal tunnel, sciatica, osteoarthritis of the knee, depression, a study that was published two weeks ago, this is an incredible study, to, was done in Australia, PEA versus placebo in patients who had diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Um, now peripheral neuropathy, if, if anybody's been diabetic for more than say 20 years, uh, there's about a one in four chance that they will have developed peripheral neuropathy where the nerves uh, and typically their hands and feet are not sending signals properly. And it can be very painful. Um, and so there's really no good 
standard treatment for it. Um, when patients have this kind of problem, they're given, sometimes they're given tricyclic antidepressants, sometimes they're treated with Neurontin uh, or Lyrica, um, but these are off-label uses of these drugs. Uh, those drugs all have side effects and they're not particularly effective. So in this clinical trial done in Australia, published two weeks ago, PEA versus placebo, um, double-blinded study, the PEA group had anywhere from a 50 to 60% reduction in the severity of pain, uh, a 50% improvement in the quality of their sleep compared to placebo, uh, less paresthesias. I mean, it was dramatic data, dramatic data. So the point is PEA is sort of the body's natural form of CBD. And it's been studied for now 20 years in a much more extensive manner than CBD has been. Um, and there's ongoing trials uh, with PEA now. Uh, you know, one of the side effects with certain types of chemotherapy can be neuropathy, um, where the, the chemotherapy drugs damage nerve endings and, and you end up with uh, neuropathy in the hands or feet. Uh, and so there's a clinical trial uh, going on right now sponsored by the National Cancer Institute looking to see multiple doses, like you said, sort of a dose finding study, a dose ranging study of PEA and also placebo in patients undergoing cancer treatment with chemotherapy to see whether it will reduce that type of neuropathy as well. Uh, so PEA is an exciting compound. Um, it's just really starting to get more attention here in the United States. Um, uh, a lot of, it's been well understood and well, widely used in Europe for a number of years, but um, here in the States, we, we suffer sometimes from what we call NIH syndrome. Um, not invented is, here. <laughs> not invented here, exactly, yeah. And, uh, you know, so, so PEA is a good example of that, but um, I, I think individuals are getting um, access to it easily. Uh, one thing I should point out is that using PEA for any of these chronic inflammatory pain conditions um, or chronic neuropathies. I mean, look, carpal tunnel and sciatica, those are compression neuropathies. That's where the nerves in question, whether it's the median nerve in the wrist for carpal tunnel or the sciatic nerve in the back, they're being compressed and that's what's damaging the nerve. So we would call that a mechanical or compression neuropathy. And then you've got diabetic neuropathies and then you've got um, uh, autoimmune neuropathies and you've got chemotherapy induced neuropathies. So there's a lot of different types of neuropathies and it's starting to look like PEA uh, can work against most, if not all of them. Um, so it's, uh, it's an exciting compound. The research is expanding uh, more and more different indications. It's totally safe because we make it in our own tissues. You can't overdose on it. It's not broken down in the liver. You know, one of the problems with CBD uh, is that CBD has to be broken down in the liver because it's a foreign substance. Um, and when GW Pharma, the company that got Epidiolex approved for, uh, which is CBD being used for seizures in children, um, the, de the daily dose of CBD that these kids are getting is like 600 milligrams, um, anywhere from 600 to 800 milligrams per day, depending on the child's weight. Um, they found that when you're giving that much CBD per day, 
it starts to interfere with the, the liver's ability to break down other drugs um, because liver has to work so hard dealing with all of that CBD. Um, so another great thing about PEA is that it doesn't get broken down in the liver. It gets broken down everywhere in the body because it's being produced everywhere in the tissues. Um, it's broken down locally. Um, no side effects, no interactions with other medications. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great compound. So we have some natural ways in which to supplement without the use of CBD slash THC. Once again, if, if those are working for you and you are purchasing those from a reputable source, always check to make sure that these products are manufactured under GMP. That's one of the things that I will say about um, what Dr. Ratner has uh, suggested about the PEA product, that it is synthesized, that it is manufactured under GMP, which is good manufacturing practices. That means that the manufacturing facility was actually inspected by the Food and Drug Administration and held to a higher standard. Please be sure that when you investigate any product that you use, that it is manufactured with the highest quality ingredients. We call them pharmaceutical grade or medical grade ingredients, and that it is manufactured under GMP. So the fact that Theralogics does manufacture these products, that they use the strictest of ways in which to do that should make you feel more comfortable. Now, Theralogics product is called Catabrex, and yeah. you can purchase that online from Theralogics. And Dr. Ratner, I just want to say that this has been a fascinating, fascinating <laughs> podcast. I'm not surprised, though. Mark and I had a conversation before we actually decided to do this podcast. And he's just a wealth of information on a variety of different topics. And we're just really excited that you were able to join us for this podcast today. And we hope that you'll join us again for the part three on THC, The Honest Conversation, because there is more. There's a lot more to be shared and uh, appreciate the history on the endocannabinoid system, some of the pitfalls, some of the things that you ought to watch out for. So... Thank you for joining us, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I could talk to you for another hour or two about the cannabinoids. It's really interesting stuff. It is very interesting. So stay tuned for the next Love Me Avita podcast. And we hope that we will be able to have Dr. Mark Ratner join us once again. Thank you. And remember to love me Avita, love your life. Be well. Oh,